Welcome to Changing Conversations with Billy Burke and me, Sarah Philp. This is a podcast creating space for conversations with, for and by educators. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. When we talk about what matters, we come alive and conversation has the power to guide us into new and different actions offering the potential for great things. We bring you conversations that have resonance both now and in the future. With the help of guests and the odd solo episode, we explore leadership, learning and well-being. We have the conversations we know you want to listen to. In this episode, I chat with Kirsty from the School of Facilitation about, well, you guessed it, facilitation. Um, Kirsty shares some insights and reflections on the skill set, mindset and observable behaviours of good facilitation. We also unpick the difference between design and the delivery or facilitation of learning and experiences or meetings. Um, And afterwards, I was thinking this could have been a really good episode to take um, your problems, conundrums, your experiences, and we could have problem solved, like what would you do if, but maybe that's an opportunity for another time. Kirsty, it's lovely to see you today. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Good. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners, who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Kirsty Lewis. I'm the founder of School of Facilitation and I work with corporates and individuals to help them design fantastic workshops and be able to deliver them brilliantly. Mm, that sounds like a fun and exciting space to work in. Uh, yeah, I love my post-it notes and my marker pens. I can get quirky about language and <laughs> body language. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and most people who know me know that I don't go anywhere without um, some Sharpies and a post-it note. So we are in good company, I think. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so beyond the Sharpies um, or pens, I know you're not a Sharpie person, pens and post-its. What, what is your passion? What has led you to school facilitation? Yeah. Good question. I come from the corporate world. I was at a company called Diageo. And in that time, I had a really, I was blessed. I had a a dream role. It was called Global Sales Capability Manager, which essentially (laughs) meant I was one of the custodians of their big sales learning program globally. and And I was really lucky for two and a half years, I got to travel and deliver that program or programs. In that time, I realized I really loved like running workshops it's not facilitating it was training I really enjoyed coaching and I could see and hear possibility of how to improve those sessions for my my participants and uh, I don't know if any of your listeners like me always carry a notebook and I used to write in the back of my work notebooks all the time Uh, ideas on how to run the workshop or how to set the room up or great questions to ask or if I notice one of my colleagues do something that I really liked from a I don't know body language perspective or a phrase that they said and so I did something quite radical I didn't wait to be made redundant that was on an offer in 2007 and I resigned I did have a plan and I resigned and I left at and went and worked for myself from 2008 and I initially started as a, a, a sales trainer and I had a very happy time. And then around 2015, I launched School of Facilitation because that's where my true passion lied in helping others 
be able to design really great workshops and learning that impacts an adult. Mm, lovely. Um, a bit like you, I quite like going to workshops and experiences and things to kind of get ideas and to experience learning. Because I think when you're the the shaper of that learning, but never experiencing learning, you you get a bit yeah dry almost. Yeah, and I think many people learn how to design workshops and learning through their personal experiences and that often starts as a child at school so what was my experience of learning at school how was I taught um so that bleeds into mm-hmm. what we do as adults next step is university if you went there or college and then finally in the world of work so it's if you've had experiences of workshops in the world of work and or you've been sent on workshops and I think that's how most people learn how to design yeah yeah and of course they're different things massively absolutely yeah so in your introduction there you you use three words facilitation training and coaching yeah (laughs) so and you you went to use one and then you changed it and use the other or you replaced it so tell us a little bit about how you see the differences or the distinctions between those things because we probably use them interchangeably great question so coach Mm -hmm. predominantly is a one-to-one relationship Mm -hmm. so we hear the language I have a coach and that's where you and I you might coach me yes uh, and it's one-to-one there is something called team coaching is when you have a total group together but it's pure coaching so you don't know what's going to come up you might have a theme that you're exploring but the the conversation is led either by the individual or the group. Trainer and facilitator, for me, sit on a spectrum at two opposite ends. So a trainer, in, at, in its purest sense, is someone who delivers knowledge, skills, processes, behavior learning. And often it's in a quite directive style. Um an example maybe of pure training could be health and safety. Some information has to be transmitted in a particular format with a particular set of words so that people can understand and learn. Someone is learning how to use a particular uh, instrument in a medical situation. There is no, there is a right and there is a wrong. At the opposite end of the spectrum is facilitation. So a facilitator. So if we look at the root of the word facilitator, it comes from Latin and also from the French word facile, and that's to make easy. So when we're in a facilitation role, we're there to make it easy for our groups to, I don't know, solve a problem, answer a question, um, look at their strategy, create a plan. Often as a facilitator, we understand the outcomes that need to be achieved. We have some tools to help a group navigate their thinking, their feelings, their emotions. But we are not in ownership of the knowledge of what they're going to say. We don't know what they're going to do. So we we do what we call hold space. Now, what I have noticed over the course of my 20 years of working in this space I think I'd love to hear from your listeners I think there's a bit of a snobbery Mm -hmm. around the word trainer Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of people call themselves a facilitator. And when you inquire, oh, what, what kind of work do you do? It is actually training and they are training sales skills, marketing skills, um, uh, finance for non-finance. And they use the word facilitator. I think what a better phrase is, is a facilitative trainer. So we use the great skills of the pull that a facilitator would have, like questions, really great exercises. It's experiential. It is, um, it, 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 we're, we're taking the learning from the adults in the room. We're not pushing down on them, which is sometimes the perception of a trainer. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's where my three, four, there's four distinctions there. So there's coach, trainer, facilitative trainer and facilitator. Yeah, yeah. And I guess thinking about um, our listeners who are mostly in the world of education, yeah. but not exclusively, I guess the, the kind of child protection training is obvious training. Yes. Because you need to know that stuff and you need to know it in a certain way for you. Yes. But then there are lots of other experiences that people will will have um, under the umbrella of school improvement, school development, professional learning, which will sit on that whole continuum of experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I would in, even as uh, doing child protection, I just encourage people who are delivering those workshops or that learning to think about even just how could I weave some questions in, yes. which I'm sure they're doing versus telling but what yeah. what can I do to talk to the adult in the room to yeah. get them to participate yeah so that maybe leads us on into thinking about well what makes a good facilitator mm. what are the what's the skill set you mentioned you good questions so we talk about skills mindset and observable behaviors uh, when I'm when I'm training up facilitators and trainers so classic skills that I think everyone needs how do you craft a really good outcome for a learning session because if without an outcome you don't know where you're going uh, so that brings purpose um, another skill definitely is the classic questioning and listening mm-hmm. so you need to be able to ask really good open questions and be able to use a closed question at the right time for confirmation or clarification and to close down a discussion, and we blend that with tone of voice. Listening skills, your ears are dialed in all the time. Um, even when you have your back turned to a group, I'm still listening. Um, another thing that I'd really encourage people to, to use is their body. So mm-hmm. we receive information through our bodies. Like, yeah. I don't know, you walk into a room and you go, God, cut cut the atmosphere with a knife you know yeah. we can tell when the energy has shifted and we can do this as well with groups so allow your body to give you information and trust it now you don't have to go what I often do is if I I get a, I know where in my body where I get a felt sense if something's off so yeah. what I do is I ask another question to check my understanding or I often get, if someone's speaking their truth, I get all very goosebumpy. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes say, can I just test something with you? And I ask a question. So it's doing things like that and say, using language like I am sensing or I am noticing. Can mm-hmm. I just ask dot, dot, dot. Other things that I think are super helpful for people 
it's mindset. So we can choose our emotions. We can choose how we think, how we feel. So when you're going into a workshop situation, choose your mindset. How do you want to be as you walk through the door? Curious, open, um, sharing, helpful. What what would serve you? So think about your mindset to to be in to to help you go through the next whatever two hours, half a day of a workshop. And then the final thing: observable behaviors. Consider your body language. How are you standing? Where are you standing? What do you do with your hands? Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine, Sarah Urquhart, talks about dancing eyebrows. So um, I wear glasses, you wear glasses. So we can hide our dancing eyebrows probably a lot more than our friends who do not wear glasses. Yeah. So like the Ray, oh, so like I'm incredibly expressive. So I have to be aware that I'm not over the top when I'm getting yeah. information back in or hearing something that I might not agree with or I'm feeling the pressure yeah Yeah. all all helpful um tips and things for people to to think about I guess one of the things that that kind of happens certainly within within education is that um teachers and school leaders can find themselves facilitating I use the term perhaps loosely there (laughs) the learning of their peers of their Mm -hmm. colleagues or of their teams but don't necessarily go through or have any kind of professional learning for themselves as to how to design that and how best to do that um so you've given us three things there that are helpful to think about are there any resources any books any podcasts even that you might direct people to to learn a bit more about what that might look like so in terms of so i do you think there's a distinction between designing and delivery? So what I just spoke to is more about how we deliver and how we show up. So in terms of design, yes, there's a lot of resources out there now. <laughs> Thank you, internet. Um, I'm going to be unashamed, ashamedly a bit of self-publication. Um, there is on the School of Facilitation website a free ebook mm-hmm. called How to Design a Workshop. And I would say download that and have a read because it walks you through the framework to design um, a workshop or a meeting but it all the same principles so that's a good place to start there's then Leanne Hughes so she has a podcast called first time facilitator she's Australian she has just published a book called the two-hour workshop I think um, and you can get that on Amazon. So that's a really good read as well. Um, so that those will give you two sets of frameworks within to start your thinking. Um, when you're designing as well, just please, please, please be clear on why are you doing it and what are the outcomes you're seeking to achieve? Yeah. Because if you're not clear on either of those, you could create anything. Mm-hmm. And you'll you'll get to a point, but will you get to the end where you wanted to get to? Mm-hmm. Um, some other podcasts that I'd like to call out that are brilliant resources. So Miriam, Dr. Miriam Hadness, she has one called Workshops Work. Um, she's about episode 250 now. So uh-huh. she interviews lots of facilitators, trainers, group coaches. Um, so there's some real um 
interesting topics in her library. As another lady to follow on YouTube, um, Meg Bulgers, she's American. And she actually deals with social justice and pure facilitation. Uh, mm -hmm. She's also on Instagram as uh, the facilitator cards. And she's always putting out super helpful information on how to navigate virtual reality or run a certain workshop or dealing with what we perceive as difficult participants. But those three women are amazing. Yeah, brilliant. It's it's always helpful to have something that you can dip into to help scaffold your your learning and your experience as you yeah. as you go. Um, what's been your biggest learning uh, in this time? Um, as a facilitator, but you've done lots of things, so it's been your biggest. Yeah, as a facilitator, I think um, that it's about me. In that, I it's not about me. That's wrong. It's like how I show up in the room is so, so important. Yes. And therefore I have to do my inner work mm -hmm. versus just my outer work. So outer work would be, I can design a workshop. I know what questions I'm going to ask. I know the topics that we're going to talk about. The inner work is the piece around my mindset. It's that everything is going to be okay. I know what to do here. The inner work is things like journaling, it's my yoga, it's my going for a run, it's going for a swim, it's having my own coach to talk stuff through. Um, I have a quote that I often use with the facilitators that I train and just be a bit blunt, it says, sort your shit out. Because <laughs> if we, and I'm, I'm sure your colleagues in education and teaching will recognize this, that if we don't sort out our shit, yeah. it, it bubbles up. Yeah, And it might bubble up in a classroom situation, like your frustration because something hasn't been dealt with at home or there is something bubbling around in a particular relationship or friendship that's not been navigated well. It leaks. So we have that phrase, we cannot not communicate. So for however much we think we're putting things in a Pandora's box, oh, it has a way, doesn't it? Yeah. Always. Getting out. It has a way of getting out. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. And I think that's relevant for education and teaching, uh, you know, in itself, isn't it? Yeah. We are, a phrase I often use to to match yours is we um, we teach who we are. Yeah. Well, like you, how you show up in the classroom, how you show up in those relationships is, is who you are. It's yeah. Who you are. So you've got to kind of do some work on that and you've got to understand that to be intentional. Yeah. Uh, with that I, I guess another place that some of that stuff can leak out and that can become um times in the day in the week where people are maybe not feeling they're most inspired mm -hmm. and it's not the case in all schools but maybe in some <laughs> staff meetings uh -huh. <laughs> might be one of those times where people do have to take maybe a, day, a big breath before they go in or often they're at the end of the day people are tired you know, the room is stuffy, it's the staff room or, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, if you could design it, it's not necessarily how you would design it to be. Yeah. Do you have any tips or thoughts on, I guess, making the best of what you have? Because we can't all create a wonderful... Of course. ...bespoke experience. I, I think I 
draw on some of the basics that I would always talk about. So it's really easy for us to go, we're going to have a meeting. And it Mm. happens in the corporate world, if this is of any help to your colleagues in education and teaching. But we don't know why we're having the meeting. Mm. And so that's often the biggest bugbear. Why why am I here? Why am I sat here now at four o'clock in the afternoon when I really want to go home? Or do you know I've got a pile of marking to do? Mm. So if you're calling a meeting, think about your invitation to that meeting and Mm. what are you telling people? So the why and the what, please put that in the meeting invite. If, especially if it's being sent electronically, um, make your invites interesting. Yeah. Just it's when it's just flat and dull and there's nothing of context in there. Don't expect people to come looking forward to it because they don't know what they're coming to. So as much information in an engaging way yeah. in your invitation. So the why and the what time location, I think also consider if you are working at the end of the day, if you were sitting there, what's the maximum amount of time? So 45 minutes, one hour. And then think about, well, what can I feasibly achieve in that short period of time? Please do not try and do more than two things in an hour. It's just not possible. If it's going to turn into a monologue of you just talking at your people, then you're not you're going to lose them after 10 minutes because adults like to be engaged. They like to do something and they like to be included. So I would always be saying, think of the question, like what is something you can do to get them engaged from the beginning? Um, And also at the start, I wouldn't necessarily be just throwing a big question into the room and expecting an answer because they probably look at you gobsmacked, but I would put a question into the room and ask them to talk to the person next to them because we sit next to people we like. And as adults, we need to validate our thinking. Mm -hmm. Um. And by sitting next to my friend, I can answer the question. I think, oh, I am answering. Oh, my thinking is right or valid. It feels okay. So that when the person that says, hey, I can hear you all talking and it's not about Billy and his playground escapades, I can really hear you talking about the subject. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Who wants to start? Who'd like to put their voice in the room? You're more likely to get some responses there. I would also be just thinking you might be asking people for an opinion or you might be trying to build something like what is the task that you could could create then it needs to be 15 minutes long to get people to go and break up into groups to do the task to have the conversation because you're more likely to get engagement that way and then they feed back and then there's a build on each other's ideas you're going to get way more engagement and probably agreement to something that needs to be done at the end of a meeting do a summary if there's any actions just confirm who's doing what by when and do a checkout so actually you could do a check-in and a checkout and just like a simple check-in could be like one word how are you doing right now and a checkout could be one word how are you doing right now yes simple things like that and I'd also say if this is piquing your curiosity and you're like oh I want to try this please tell people you're doing something different otherwise they're going to sit in your first meeting go whoa (laughs) <laughs> Matthew's really gone out there, hasn't he? What? What? <laughs> so I think you need to tee people up so that they're ready that there's going to be something different about the meeting. Yeah. And I think that also can bring a bit of kind of confidence to yourself as well. Like just saying you're going to try something different without being yeah. 
pressure on yourself to have it be absolutely amazing because oh my god absolutely and that's one of the things I notice we often do is put pressure on ourselves to have it all sorted to know all the answers we might put ourselves in the place of experts and we're not so we might have expertise in a subject but we're not experts that's leave that leave that for the nuclear scientists leave that for the brain surgeons we are we're educators I'm an educator of adults so we don't need to know everything as I often say to my team when they think the world's falling apart I'm like no one has died we're all healthy we're all okay it was a missent email or, you know, whatever the situation. What's your favorite way to start? Oh, easy. I read a poem and then do two minutes silence. <laughs> There's probably a lot of people going, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame them. I didn't do it either in the corporate world. Um, the reason I do it though, Sarah, is I've realized that poetry is a really great way to help people um notice the metaphor the analogy yeah and allow them to make connections with what we're about to talk about and also having silence allows people to really arrive and get present in the room with their colleagues and and I talk about it straight afterwards like why have we just done a poem and why have we just had silence and I acknowledge that they've traveled maybe far and wide or they've just rushed into the zoom room or the MS team's room from the left field and their brains are probably still processing the last conversation they had just outside the door so this is time for them to settle I call it the settling period yes I um I talk about psychological arrival as well as physical arrival because we can, you know, like a team meeting, a staff meeting at the end of the school day for people physically arrive, but their head is still in their classroom, thinking about their children, thinking about what they've just taught, the lesson that went well or didn't go well, and all the things that come with that. And actually, it can be like 10 minutes before the brain catches up with the body. Absolutely. I mean, another one that you could do, I use cards a lot. So I've got different cards. I've got uh, laminated photos and just sometimes even having those on the floor and just asking people to select one to just share. How are you right now? And pictures are easier for people to express themselves. And if you said, uh, describe how you are right now and you only have your brain, like your brain is far too logical at times. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I know you're a fan of Priya Parker's um Art of Gathering. You went straight out of my Sorry. head. <laughs> totally went out of my head. Um and she talks about kind of on ramps and and various other kind of tools. And she talks a lot about the the invitation as well. And I guess all these things are designed. Well, I think what it showed me is you have to think as much about the pre as the actually having people there. Definitely. And I think um, I have really learned that. And recently what we've been doing, I like you, that's how we met, like through social media. And we have a really good copywriter and she's really helped us 
with certain we call them sales pages when we're promoting a, a workshop and I suddenly realized though some of those words would be brilliant in meeting invites when I'm working with corporates on the same subject so I've refined the meeting invites that we use for the corporates to use this copy this kind of copy that she's written and I I have more responses now from the participants just going oh really excited about this oh thank you for that invite because it's more engaging people are then oh what's going to happen I'm quite excited yeah I am a couple of times have used it's a a tool called video ask it allows you yes start video and then you can send a link and people can respond either typing something in leave an audio or a video of themselves and sometimes I send that in nice Um, because I realise that sometimes with the work that I do, I'm I might be working with people that I haven't met in person before, and I may not meet them in in person. And it's a way to kind of meet before you meet. Yeah, if, if you know what I mean. Nice. Um, and that's always been quite useful, and I'm always amazed that people respond. Yeah, it's a yeah. great way of building connection. Yeah, exactly. Connection is the best starting point. Yes um any no-nos yeah shaming so we're working with adults adults do not respond well to being shamed in fact their brains will shut down and you won't get anything out of them so old school world of training if you were late back from a break it would be sing a poem or sing a song read a poem 10 press-ups and and you're just shaming someone uh it doesn't help and the same is true with if someone in a session with you doesn't get it exactly right and we sort of go oh no that's totally wrong and uh, yes it might well be the case do they need to know it's 100% wrong probably not it can but you could reply like okay that's really interesting what makes you think that encourage them to tell you more versus shutting them down or asking the rest of the group, what do they think? Um, other no-nos for me, simple things about our body language is like pointing at someone. Mm. So some people have that as a body language pattern yeah. uh, in everyday thinking, talking. Even then it's probably not comfortable, but being pointed at just feels odd. The other thing as well, I'm sure teachers know about this, when you're at the front of the room facing outwards, and mm-hmm. if say you're doing something that requires movement, my biggest bugbear, this is my yoga bugbear as well, <laughs> is when someone says, everybody on the left-hand side of the room, and they wave their left hand. Yeah. But to the audience, it's the right-hand side. Yeah. So for me, one of the things I, I, re- I just think we have to be ninjas. We have to be really skilled at adapting our body language, adapting our, our left and our right so that it meets the audience's needs yes yeah be another one um and anything else that you find that is helpful about building that connection any tools that you use during so I'm thinking perhaps sometimes um we might feel a little resistant to the topic of whatever you know a workshop or a session is about for a variety of reasons and certainly as a facilitator or a trainer or anything in between, um, that resistance can 
feel quite overwhelming and can feel like it's really sucking you in. Also, I know that sometimes mm. you get dropped, focused on the person who's not smiling at you as opposed to the person who is smiling at you. Brilliant. So, really. <laughs> how, how do we kind of manage that connection and disconnection perhaps? In a Great question. So one of my teachers for many years ago, a man called Tim Andrews, he's written a book called Where's Your Spotlight? And one of the things he noticed was we do have a tendency to put our focus and our energy on those who are being disruptive or not participating. And that might be two people out of 12. Yes. He said, so then you're turning your back on the 10 who've arrived on time, who want to be there. He said, so why don't you have a go at turning your direction and your focus on those who would wish to be there? So it's not to say you snub and you, you block the two that don't want to be there but you don't put all your energy and your mental resources trying to win them round. I thought and another colleague Sarah says to me is there such a thing as a difficult participant or is it our perception because my perception of difficult is probably really different to your perception Sarah so again we, I think a reframe for us is like, what do we do with certain behaviors when they show up in the room mm-hmm. and having different tools and tactics to help us navigate those different behaviors yeah. and maybe move, reframe our language from they're difficult. Mm. I think maybe. that's a really, really useful reframe to look at the behaviors. Yeah. And, and think about that. Yes. Yeah. Because it is, it can feel very draining yeah, and feel like you're not really getting anywhere and you're looking for that feedback. But the feedback yeah. is still there from all those other people. It's just you're, yeah. not at them. you're not seeing that feedback because you're focused on one or two people as it yeah. is the case. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I also read somewhere there was research and I, can, I can't remember if it's right or left, <laughs> but we have a tendency to either look to the left of a room or the right of a room um Ooh. left so I you know that's always made yeah me, what's your kind of default like where do you where do you tend to look because I think we do have almost like a I don't know if it's we like do. memory or something so so I often yeah you're right I see that with some facilitators and trainers so I that they get fixated on one space and then because yeah. I'm often sitting in the audience coaching them I can feel the lack of love so I like by not being looked yeah. at. So what I often encourage people to do is practice the eye sweep. Mm-hmm. So this works for teachers in classrooms as well as it does working in a meeting room. It's <laughs> like, so when you're asking a question, you track your eyes mm-hmm. around the room from left to right and right to left. Because then you include everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And it works. And it just another thing that's brought to mind there is about the amount of time we need to wait when we ask a question as well. Yeah. Pause, take a breath, give the give give people a chance to think before they reply. Because a classic is our fear, or in some people's fear, not everyone, of silence. Yeah. So my God, I am a classic extrovert. And I promise you, when I first started doing this, I hated silence. <laughs> I was just like, oh. They're not answering my question. Oh my God, I need to say something. And and that was the wrong thing to do. So often I would fill in the silences 
and just if I'd waited an extra nanosecond, someone would have said something. Now, I would turn it into a game. I'm just like, I ask the question, then I I can go silent. It's it's the belligerent child in me here, Sarah, but I would just be like, I can stand here forever. It's okay. Yeah. But silence and people's fear of silence. And I think it's always interesting because, again, when you're experiencing that silence, it doesn't necessarily feel like a long time because you're thinking. Yeah. And you're you're working out what you might say or what you think about a particular thing. Um, whereas when you're the one standing there waiting, that silence feels like forever and a day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Brilliant. Christy, we could probably talk for ages and unpick so many different elements of facilitation and training and um to use the phrase holding the space for people in that kind of learning learning way um and it's been really helpful to have the conversation I think you've given people lots of practical things to think about and lots of things that they can go away and explore and I will make sure that in the show notes I put the link to your website and the ebook so people can look at that as well But before you go, we finish all our podcasts with the same two questions. The first one is, what are you reading at the moment? Oh, a book, two books, one called Outlive by Dr. Peter Attia. And it's how do we, how do we think about how long we want to live? And if you know we want to live to, say, when 95, you retrofit backwards what you need to be doing now with your sleep, your eat, your movement. (laughs) your spirituality Uh, and then I'm reading a book on writing books oh so how do you write a book gosh those are my two reads at the moment (laughs) um I'm gonna definitely check out the one about uh outliving yourself (laughs) um and the second question or thing that we finish with is do you have a quote or a message that you would like to leave listeners with trust yourself Mm. we're not taught to trust ourselves and actually you probably know a lot more than you give yourself credit for and when you're standing at the front of the room trust yourself that you know what to do next absolutely absolutely that's a very wise words to finish on Kirsty. thank Thank you. you thanks for having me my pleasure thanks for listening to this episode we hope you enjoyed it and found it useful if you enjoy listening you can support us by following on your preferred platform sharing on social media or leave us a review. Thanks again.